0: It's good to see everybody again whether you're here in person or you're joining us online it's just always wonderful to be able to gather and worship together as you recall from last week we brought our football back up here and that's to remind us of the fundamentals as you recall coach lombardi at the beginning of each football season he'd assemble the team in the locker room and he'd start each season by holding the ball up and saying gentlemen this is a football and that's because it's so easy to lose sight and miss out on the fundamentals, because we get focused on other things. It happens in football, it happens in our lives, and it happens in church, too. In fact, at one extreme, we often see churches so focused on the traditions, and there's nothing wrong with traditions, I'm a big fan of traditions, but sometimes we get so focused on them, we're so interested in always singing hymns, as if no new music could have been written since the 1800s, right? And that distracts us from the fundamentals. And then at the other extreme, we have churches that are so focused on the new fad, the new way of doing things. They always want to have a cup of coffee in your hand as you walk through the door. They always have to sing the top 10 K-Love songs. And then everyone's running around on the stage with skinny jeans, right? <laughs> so it's kind of become, again, one of those things that takes our eyes off the fundamentals. But at 4 Mile, our identity is in the fundamentals. And that's the word we're going to focus on today, identity. What is our identity? As a church, our identity surrounds three fundamentals, and we talk about it often. First, we're a church with a vision to reach the tri-state region and beyond, making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. If you think about that, that's exactly what Cami taught us about last week. As she focused on the Great Commission, it's straight in line with the Commission. It's one of our fundamentals. The second is that we are a church with flaws. And that's why each week we remind you that it is okay to not be okay. Now we don't celebrate our not okayness. In fact, we don't want to stay there. Which is why our third identity is so important, that we're a church that loves you enough to tell you the truth in the person, words, and works. Of our Savior Jesus Christ and we're gonna be learning about this truth now as we kick off this new series for really the better part of the next year with a letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians now why Ephesians well this letter was written to be passed around to the early church in Asia Minor it contained guidance about how the church should operate in response to the Great Commission And as you recall from last week we're seeking as a church to get better at these 12 pillars up here. Although I think we got the Apostle Creed up there. Anyway, there'll be 12 pillars up here in just a minute. (laughs) Those 12 pillars that we've been talking about for quite a while, and those are exactly the same areas that the early church was focused on. So a great deal of what we'll find in this letter to the Christian church in Ephesus applies directly to us here at Four Mile. If you think about it back then, The church was in its formative stages. Jesus had been crucified and resurrected. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwelled believers. And then he lit the flame in the church, and it ignited in Christ. From a handful of weary disciples, the church has now grown to more than 2.4 billion professing believers today. And we go back and look at the early church, We don't see them wedded to the traditions of their past. We also don't see them adopting the latest fads of the world to bring them into the church. Rather, what we see is a church possessing a healthy fear of the Lord, humbled before Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and actively engaged in the 12 pillars we keep talking about, on mission, in response to the Great Commission, just like us, acknowledging, that it's okay to not be okay, but not wanting to stay in that not okay place, just like us, and by pursuing the truth in the person, words, and works of Jesus with all they've got, just like us. In other words, a church focused on the fundamentals. So you're never gonna catch me up here wearing skinny jeans, sorry. <laughs> Tyler isn't gonna learn how to play the organs, we bring all these old hymns back, and he's also not gonna be focused on all of the K-Love top 10, and Cammie refuses to get training to be a barista, and we know how she is about this whole cooking thing anyway. (laughs) We're simply going to be a church focused on the fundamentals, just like the early church. So let's start by taking a look at the cultural historical context of this letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians was written by the apostle Paul, or a close associate, somewhere between 62 and 100 AD. Recall, Paul was a Pharisee who made it his life's work to persecute Christians. He even famously presided over Stephen's stoning, as you see up there in the graphic. And then, shortly thereafter, Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he's blinded by a bright light. And then Jesus spoke to him. He asked Paul why he'd been persecuting him. And then he directed Paul to go into the city and wait to be told what to do. And then Jesus sends Ananias, one of his followers, to deliver a threefold message to Paul. First, that Paul was a chosen instrument of God. A chosen instrument. We're going to spend a lot of time on that in the next couple weeks. Second, that he was chosen to take the message of Jesus to the Jews the Gentiles and the Roman authorities, another really important point. And then third, that he would get to suffer for Jesus' sake. Three really important points to his particular commission. Then Paul's eyesight returns, he receives the Holy Spirit, he's water baptized, and he takes up his cross and he responds to his commission. And how do we know that? Well, first of all, a large portion of the New Testament is written by Paul and that's primarily because he did three major missionary journeys that he undertook to help establish the early church. He focuses efforts in the area along the northern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, spending significant time in Ephesus where there were both Jews and Gentiles, part of this commission. As you can see on the map of Paul's first missionary journey. It actually did not involve the town of Ephesus, as you see on that blue dot up there. But on his second missionary journey, Paul stopped in Ephesus for three months, laying the foundation for the church there. As you can see on the map, Ephesus was a port city, so it was a significant center of commerce and trade, which meant that it had wide wealth disparity. You had very wealthy people who benefited from the trade, and you had poor people who basically served those wealthy people. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, and it had the largest amphitheater in the world at the time. It could seat 50,000 people. It also was the home to the Temple of Artemis to worship the goddess Diana, which was built around 550 BC. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple was the center of their economy as travelers came from far and near. To buy these shrines and images of the goddess Diana. So it was an idolatrous, immoral, commercial, material, self-focused culture, a lot like we live in today. But because of its prominence, Ephesus provided a tremendous opportunity for ministry, which is probably why on his third missionary journey, Paul stayed in Ephesus for two and a half years, strengthening relationships and building up the church. Ephesus was also the setting for many New Testament events Paul wrote first Corinthians from there Performed many miracles from there people were even healed by touching his handkerchiefs magicians and sorcerers famously burned those books there Priscilla and Aquila discipled Apollos in Ephesus and Timothy Timothy had his first pastorate there So Ephesus played a major role in the early church and after spending More than two years in Ephesus, Paul then made his way to the town of Corinth, which was the furthest point on his missionary journey. It says in Acts that Paul labored so that all Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, just as he was commissioned to do by Jesus through the words of Ananias. And then Paul began his return trip home to Jerusalem, where he made a stop in Miletus. And the elders from Ephesus met up with him one last time before he returned to Jerusalem, wrapping up his missionary journeys, and then he headed off to Rome, just like he was supposed to, to fulfill part of his commission from Jesus. So do you see how careful Paul was to respond to his commission? And so must we. So the church in Ephesus was special to Paul. And of course, when he was imprisoned in Rome, several years later, he writes this letter back to them it's a letter of encouragement where the first half focuses on what the early church was to believe, covering such topics as you see up there in blue. Election, the Holy Spirit, the assurance of salvation, grace through faith, unity, and prayer. And then the second half of the letter focuses on how we're to behave as members of Christ's body, his church. And you'll see up there in orange, He taught on spiritual gifts, how we're to use them. The new life in Christ, submission, marriage, parenting, the armor of God, and this really important word, encouragement. In other words, the fundamentals of our belief and our behavior, which is why it's such a fitting text for us to study as we launch our Let's Go effort. Now, interestingly, One of the seven letters in the book of Revelation is also addressed to the church in Ephesus, so it's important we check it out. Here are Jesus' words as John records in Revelation. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing for my name's sake, You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So Jesus begins by commending them for their works, their patient endurance, the rejection of false prophets. But Jesus also gives them this noteworthy rebuke. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. In other words, they'd lost sight of the fundamentals, just like we're all so prone to do. The church in Ephesus struggled to remain faithful in the face of an idolatrous and immoral culture. So while they were going through the motions of church life, they were increasingly distracted by the culture around them. They'd lost their passion and spirit for Jesus, and so he called them to repent, to refocus on the fundamentals. And so we're going to work through the first half, belief throughout the summer, and throughout the fall. And then we're gonna take a break for Advents. And then we'll pick up the second half of Ephesians in January, and we'll work through that. And it'll probably take us more than a year to go through all this. So I would encourage everyone to spend some time in Ephesians, it's only six chapters, takes 20 minutes to read. Read it over, and over, and over again. There's just so much in here. So now let's take a look at the opening lines of Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, and I've broken it into three parts for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we learn a great deal from just a couple of introductory lines. All of Scripture is God-breathed, So resist the urge to breeze over something like an introductory line or a genealogy. There's so much richness in every single word in Scripture. In part one here, Paul identifies himself. In part two, we see to whom the letter is addressed. And then in part three, there's a greeting. So let's work in reverse. Part three, the greeting. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is a uniquely Christian greeting because Paul uses these two distinctly Christian words grace and peace. And notice how different this is from how we greet each other. We say things like, Good morning. I hope you're well. In other words, I wish you a happy and healthy morning. And there's nothing wrong with happy and healthy, but that's clearly not Paul's focus. It's grace. And peace and So when you walk through the door today people kept saying grace and peace to you and many of you are like What's up with that? And you even responded with yeah. Good morning, right? But grace and peace just think about what that really looks like We're gonna be studying it in great detail over the next year But for now we can think of grace as unmerited favor Something God bestows out of his love and not by our merits And we can think of peace as reconciled unity, a result of exercising those gifts of repentance and forgiveness that we studied in Psalm 51 throughout Lent. Now, grace and peace are both benefits that can only come from God. And we see Paul confirming this because he says, grace and peace from God our Father. And he also adds the Lord Jesus Christ, reaffirming Christ's lordship. In this greeting... Paul conveys his desire for his brothers and sisters in Ephesus to experience the unique bounty of heaven, God's gifts of grace and peace. Perhaps we should all consider changing how we greet each other. In part two, we find Paul again writing from a jail in Rome that he directs this letter to the saints in Ephesus. Now, what are saints? Well, saints are just believers. If you believe, you're a saint. So this letter could have been written to the saints at Four Mile Church. And we know that the saints in Ephesus included both those who were formerly Jews and Gentiles. So this letter is not written to the current Jews and to the unbelieving Gentiles, but rather to those who are faithful in Christ, meaning Christians, former Jews and Gentiles who placed their faith in Christ Jesus, and thus, they contend earnestly for him. And as we'll see over the coming months, the content that Paul covers would make no sense to an unbeliever. It is inherently a Christian letter written to Christians to encourage their belief and their behavior. The word saint also means to be set apart. It's perhaps why the early church was so effective, because they were set apart. They responded to their commission. And if we're honest, as a church, not just formal, but as a church universal, we're not very set apart from our culture today, mostly because we haven't taken our commission seriously. And at times, it's even hard to distinguish saints from everyone else because we're so focused on our coffee, our music, our skinny jeans. So to be a saint involves being set apart by our inward belief and our corresponding outward behavior in Christ. Now I personally find part one to be the most fascinating part because just look at how Paul introduces himself. He doesn't say, I'm Paul from Tarsus. Look at my many impressive degrees. I serve as a missionary and a pastor, as if to say, I'm a handsome and powerful man. You should know this about me right like most of our signature blocks try to convey to others no paul doesn't mention any worldly credentials paul's identity is in christ paul says that he is an apostle of christ jesus and he also makes it clear that he didn't do anything to earn it his apostleship in christ is simply by the will of god meaning he is what he is because of god That's his identity Isn't that absolutely mind-blowing? There's such freedom in that So why don't we introduce people like this? I know whenever I've been introduced over the years It's almost always been with a title Professor doctor colonel and now pastor all of them drive me crazy There's also a lot of other words people use but I can't talk about those up here But when is the last time? Our introduction was simply David, a servant of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's a title we should all embrace, a title where our identity isn't in anything that we've done or that we do, but rather our identity is simply in Christ Jesus by the will of our Father in heaven. If you're a saint, your identity is no longer as a doctor, a teacher, an athlete, or a musician. Your identity is in Christ, by the will of God. It's actually the highest distinction we could ever have. I actually find that to be one of the most helpful aspects of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Because in addition to being an excellent source of wisdom for the church, the letter also provides significant guidance to us in our personal walk with the Lord. In other words, it helps us with our identity as a church and our identity as individuals. And perhaps one of the best ways to see the importance of our identity is to consider our tombstones. And unless the Lord returns, each of us will have one of these one day. It's not a morbid thought because tombstones actually represent a life. If you were never born, you wouldn't have one. Even the psalmist in Psalm 90 says, Teach us to number a day's aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In fact, we should spend a lot of time in cemeteries because it's an important reminder for all of us. Tombstones typically have several key identifying marks. First, they normally have a name. Our name represents the uniqueness of who we are. When someone says our name, an image comes to mind. Characteristics such as hard worker or lazy, tall, short, happy, grumpy, anxious, chilled out. Of course, titles can also come to mind when we hear a person's name, mother, wife, doctor, mechanic, electrician, or as Paul suggests, a servant of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then, there are three vital aspects of a tombstone displayed squarely in the middle and for good reason. The first is the day in which we are born And we all have one of these. And that birth date reminds us of a critical question that we all must have an answer for. Where did I come from? And I don't mean our location of birth or the family in which we were born into. No, this is much deeper. It speaks to our identity from an existential perspective. Where did our characteristics, such as our looks, our motivations, our talents, our desires, where did all of that come from? Do you see? How the answer to this first question speaks directly to our identity and it shapes how we live out our lives second there will be a date when we pass i denoted up there with question marks it could be any day for any one of us none of us are promised tomorrow and that date too reminds us of another vital question where will i go when i die do we just return to dust Or does our soul live on for eternity? And if so, where does it reside? When I was an army officer, that was one of the most often questions that I was asked by my soldiers. So where do I go when I die? Because in the military, you're always confronted with the reality of death. It's just the nature of the business. And once again, our answer to this second question informs our identity. And so it too shapes how we live out our lives. And then third... There's a small dash in the middle, separating our birth date from our death date. It's usually not a very long dash, but it represents the five, six, seven, eight, maybe nine decades that comprise our lives. But when you think about our life in the context of eternity, that little tiny dash is actually appropriately sized. So the real question is, How will we spend our dash? And that's why it signifies arguably the most important question we can ever answer in our lives. Why am I here? Do you know why you are here? Your purpose. When it's all said and done, what will your life have been about? Will it have been about your job, your family, your friends? Or could it be about something even bigger than that. And unfortunately, far too many of us have lived the entirety of our lives without answers to any of these questions. It's perhaps why we find ourselves so dazed, so confused, so lost, so easily distracted by the world, because we don't really know where we came from. We don't really know where we're going when we die. and We don't really know why we're here either. If these questions trouble you, I have good news. Our study in Ephesians is going to be a tremendous help to all of us because Paul is going to explain in great detail where the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus came from, where they're going when they die, and why they're here in the first place. It's going to be an exciting year, I promise. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we set out on this journey to learn from the letter that you inspired Paul to write to the church in Ephesus, would you speak to each of us on a very personal level? Convict us of our identity as servants of Christ Jesus by your sovereign and goodwill. We praise your mighty name, Jesus, and thank you for what you will do through this truth over the coming months, and in the next year, day by day, calling us to a deeper dependence on you. All for Jesus' sake, amen. So in response today, let's take a few minutes with our tombstones. What will be written beneath our name? How will we answer these three critical questions? And how do they help shape our identity?